0: Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Before our episode today, we would like to tell you about a special promotion we are running with our friend, Joshua Gibbs, for the month of June. Joshua Gibbs is a teacher, a lecturer on pedagogy and great books, and the author of How to Be Unlucky, Something They Will Not Forget, and the forthcoming Love What Lasts. The first Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference will be held July 8th through the 9th, 2022. Over the course of two days, Gibbs will deliver eight lectures on topics, including how to write, implement, explain, and defend a classroom catechism, and what is bound to be one of my favorites, how to fix your faculty development program and attract better faculty. He will also host two Q&A sessions for attendees. For listeners of the Classical Education podcast, Joshua Gibbs is offering a special price for those who register during the month of June. If you would like to know how to register for the Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference and receive a $100 rebate on the registration price, please email us at beautifulteaching@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Again, that's beautifulteaching@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Let us know that you are interested in saving $100 on registering for the Gibbs Classical Online Summer Conference, and we will let you know how. And now, please enjoy our show.
1: Well, our guest today is Dr. Reno Loro, joining us to discuss uh, Tolkien's view of education and why Tolkien is important for classical education. But before we start the show, I want you to know about our monthly bonus podcast. Exclusive for our Patreon supporters, this month we invited Dr. Loro to speak with us after today's episode and discuss his work with Terrence Malick on the film, The Tree of Life. So that recording is available now if you support us on Patreon. In addition to exclusive access to bonus episodes, our great conversation partners are invited to join us for a live interactive discussion each month. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education so you can immerse yourself in a classical education experience you can also visit our website classicaleducationpodcast.com and there's a link to our Patreon page so you can join from there. Well, Rena, we are super excited to have you as our guest today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us yeah. on this exciting and much anticipated topic. We did a we did a um, survey a couple of months ago asking people which topic they would be most interested in yours was one of the uh, questions in the survey, and it came out on top. So I know our listeners are anxious to hear hear about this. So Trey, why don't you open up with the question uh, that you had prepared for the opening of our introduction to Reno?
0: Wonderful, Reno. Thanks for joining us here. I should like to begin with the name of a man who uh, may be considered to be uh, a, of a myth and a legend himself. And I wonder if you could just answer the question simply Who was J.R.R. Tolkien? Thank you so
2: much uh, for having me. Um, And uh, and thank you for asking that question. I love uh, that question, especially in that context. Um, uh, Who was this man? Tolkien uh, was a veteran of World War I. Um, He was a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature and language. uh, Initially at the University of Leeds, um, and then very quickly, around 1925, um, professor of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford stayed for uh, the rest of his career and tenure. He's also the author of The Lord of the Rings um, and uh, a larger legendarium collected in the Silmarillion uh, and The Hobbit, though there's a uh, a good story about that as well. I think most importantly, um, uh, and personally for him, uh, he was uh, a lifelong, uh, very devout, uh, pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic, uh, a husband uh, married to his childhood sweetheart and a father of four children, um, which I think is a large role too in just the, uh, the, the reality his life and work. He's also a great friend, uh, friend of uh, uh, many scholars, uh, and friendship was a tremendous uh, uh, tremendously important uh, uh, activity and, uh, and role that uh, he played and he sought in others. And principally, Um, Throughout much of his professional life, his great friend, as we know, was C.S. Lewis, uh, but friends of other great scholars uh, in Oxford during this time. For instance, uh, R.G. Collingwood, the great uh, Roman archaeologist and historian, uh, Father Gervais Matthews, who was uh, the foremost uh, scholar of Byzantine history and studies at Oxford. So uh, a man of of, uh, tremendous experience and insight and passion um, and a man of uh, very uh, dedicated uh, family life and
0: uh, friendship. You mentioned the Lord of the Rings and I would imagine that most people are first introduced to talking through that work and most people probably think of uh, Tolkien uh, in, in his, uh, as the author of those uh, wonderful books, uh, or perhaps uh, people have seen the, the recent films uh, made that are on those, on those books. I wonder, uh, for this conversation in particular, do you think you could talk about why Tolkien is important in the world of classical education? Yeah, yeah. So
2: this is a a, a growing question that's very uh, close to my heart. Um, for instance, I mean, we mentioned the Lord of the Rings, right? But um, I think I, I think it would be interesting to take a survey to see uh, how many uh, schools have the Lord of the Rings uh, in their. Uh, generally, uh, the the classical world encounters Tolkien uh, through The Hobbit. Um, which originally wasn't even part of his legendarium. It was a story that um, he didn't even want published. It was something akin to uh, Farmer Giles Am or The Smith of Wutan Major, uh, which was just kind of an experiment in storytelling with a little bit of uh, relationship to language. He mentions uh, uh, in a letter that there's a lone philological remark uh, in that text. So we, we uh, generally only really encounter him through the Hobbit. Um, but um, I think, um, and my hope is in the kind of brief time that we have here, that we'll see that Tolkien's project as a whole and his view on the relationship, the inextricable link between language, literature, history, and human anthropology, right? Uh, um, is uh, precisely the kind of synthetic view to borrow a term from uh, uh, Charlotte Mason. I think Karen Klass uses this term um, a lot in her uh, work on Charlotte Mason. This synthetic view of learning um, is precisely the model that we want to pursue uh, in our classical schools um, and our approach to classical education. But I think often we find challenging precisely because uh, Tolkien um, as a scholar, um, not just the author of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings um, is often uh, overlooked.
0: Hmm. Well, we're only a few minutes in and you've already mentioned Charlotte Mason. So I'm sure Adrian is <laughs> eager to jump in, ask questions uh, related to Tolkien but uh, likely to, to, to make that uh, connection again. Uh, before we turn it over to Adrian, I wonder, you mentioned uh tolkien's interest in language could you say a bit more about his relationship to language I, my my understanding of tolkien is that he had a a rather unique and special relationship with language uh, throughout his life
2: yeah so the the story is actually uh um very narrow but deep right um non-multa. um so Uh, The story is this, Uh, Tolkien is uh, a a trained philologist, uh, but by the early 20th century, because of the the trajectory of Western philosophy and the relationship between language and ideas, uh, principally through positivism, um, which was a a philosophical movement, which we don't necessarily need to uh, get into in too much depth uh, for the moment. His view of language and his particular craft and trade was beginning to be looked upon with suspicion um, and was c- continuing to be transformed into the modern kind of linguistics departments that we know about. Okay. So he's coming, uh, he's trained, he's really a 19th century man uh in when it comes to, to education. Now, this was really important uh, in Oxford as well, right? Because uh, um, uh, the, uh, his particular discipline is a product of mid 19th century academia. Uh, philology uh, came about in the same movement as uh, um, archaeology and the professional study of history. Uh, philology uh, simply is. Um, and he would, he would say this as well, um, a, a scientific study of uh, language um, and the changes in language in order to uh, better understand the world in which language is used and to recover uh, ancient languages. So for instance, in the 19th century, we have um, philologists who are making connections between Sanskrit and, right? And they're beginning to say, wait a second, there's some larger relationship here that we can say without um, w- without any doubt that these two words um, are related. They come from the same language family. This is where we get uh, the, the reconstruction of what is now known as Proto-Indo-European, which was um, an ancient family language um, of which uh, um, uh, hundreds of of um, contemporary languages are born from. So Tolkien is a firm believer in this. Now, there's uh, uh, in Oxford, so cut to the chase, in Oxford, however, in the late 19th century, we also have uh, um, uh, the, the birth of uh, kind of modern kind of literary studies and, and literary ideas. And so, uh, as well as psychological and scientific uh, uh, ideas that are beginning to kind of push into the, the Oxford faculty. We should also note that in the 19th century, the faculty of Oxford uh, University, which is really a collection of colleges uh, under the flag of the University of, of Oxford, so they're independent colleges. Um, the faculty of the University of Oxford in the 19th century doubled something like, 20, let's say 25 to 50. These are, you know, approximates, but um, um, I think it's like 24 to, to 46 or something like that. Um, and so th- the faculty is growing, and also the culture um, historically um, in England and in Western Europe is also changing. Um, So we should also kind of in the back of our head have uh, the growth of industrialization and modernization and the birth of cinema, the birth of wireless telegraphy, all things are coming into play. At Oxford, um, uh, what he quickly began to see was that there was a division which he called artificial um, pseudo-technical separation between the study of language um, specifically, English, which was beginning to be viewed as the root of the English language, he incidentally would say it was full bloom, a full blooming flower, um, of which uh, he borrows from or shared the view from Lewis's friend Owen Barfield that um, old words are not old, um, actually, new words that we're using now are the old words, right? Um, but that that um, that the study of this language and the study of the literature began to separate more and more. Mm -hmm. And really, friendship with Lewis was born over trying to, at least in their tenure at Oxford, to kind of bridge that gap. And to say the study of the history of England is also um, the study of the history of the English language. And the study of the history of the English language is also the study of a people, and so I think there. You know, he called he called this artificial division uh, uh, basically an academic apartheid.
1: Yes. Okay. I, I was uh, waiting. I was going to quote that.
2: <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. Please, yeah, yeah. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah. A good place to stop.
1: Well, I, I, okay. So, Re- so just for our listeners, our Re- Reno um, had us read a valid. It's called valedictory address to the Oxford to the University of Oxford, published. Uh, well, given I guess June fifth, nineteen fifty nine. It's a yeah. valedictory address, and it's very interesting um, because it does unpack this same idea that we hear like from Karen Glass talking about Charlotte Mason about the idea of synthetic versus analytical and teaching holistically uh, first before we get into analysis as teachers, Mm. okay? So this is where we tie into the idea of of a a more connected curriculum where everything is tied together and not segmented into different subjects. So I think what Tolkien was, uh, was saying in this address, and Reno, please correct me if I'm wrong, the gist of it was he was very distraught over the important idea that they were wanting to separate literature and language into two different courses of study. And so he did not agree with the um, changing of the name or the name of the um, the school. He says um, it was called the Honor School of English Language and Literature. And he goes on to then say that it should be sufficient to just call it the school of English. Um, And he even says, I should be well content with literature if letters is now too archaic. And he he brings up a really great point as well, which I really loved, is pointing them back to the tradition of the trivium in a sense. So he goes into talking about the tradition of grammar um, from the ancient sense and how literature and letters language is all tied together as one. So grammar in the trivium is really, it's learning to read, learning to speak. It's all of it. It's all combined. It's not separated into these stages of uh, like in the neoclassical movement today, stages of development, but it's also not separated by subjects. It's all together. It's yeah. one. And yes, he goes on then after several pages in, this is where he says, but I have the hatred of apartheid in my bones. And most of all, I detest the segregation of separation of language and literature. And it's a brilliant speech. I loved how he ended it. Um, and it, it, I, I hope our listeners will go find the speech and read it. But what I, I'd like to dig in more a little bit here, Reno, is how this is important to um, the idea that Tolkien, uh, Tolkien is important for us to understand as classical educators. Like, what, is, what are we seeing here in his philosophy about the view of how we learn?
2: The view of how we learn.
1: Yeah, as people, how are we as people? Like, how do we learn?
2: Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, I mean, within the speech itself, he'll, he'll call himself uh, um, an amateur mm-hmm. in many ways, right? Um, he, he famously would uh, mumble during lectures, um, so... He's, he's not a product of, of, of the kind of dynamic speaking uh, that one uh, would associate with uh, kind of brilliant teaching or wonderful teaching or, or inspiring teaching. He, his view of learning is simply this, that it's rooted in a cosmology and anthropology uh, and a relationship with the great story of uh, the created universe, There's something kind of larger at work in learning itself. And so two things to be said with that so that we can kind of like tie that down closer and closer, right, Um, is that his view of philology although he would say scientific, right, um, is that it reveals, for instance, what true science and true technical mastery looks like. It's in service of bringing and bridging and tying together what it means to be a human being with the deep things of the universe. This is precisely what we do in a classical school, right? Mm Um, try to, we usually just articulate it when it comes to, uh, uh, let's say, mathematics and play, for instance, right? Um, but here at the, at the level of, of the way that we speak to each other and the stories that we write um, and why particular stories are more uh, beneficial than others, he is concerned with. Um, he's also um, uh, deeply uh, concerned uh, with um, um, the relationship between um, human beings and the cosmology and uh, the theological implications, right mm-hmm. that are created in a way that uh, that language and story are inextricably linked. Yes, and that making uh, and, and observing are inextricably linked. All of these things are tied together. Um, And this is why um, to him, um, and this this is the importance of of his poem, Mythopoeia, um, is actually a far richer uh, philosophical project of which my my dissertation is about. And this is why principally my desire to kind of connect Tolkien's kind of philosophy here to uh, classical education and vice versa. Um, that, that there is a larger project at work which um, is revealed to us uh, in the particular Christian story itself.
1: Yeah, Who yeah.
2: we are, who we are uh, uh, as uh, kind of created human beings um, and how we speak, how we tell stories um, should also be reflected in how we teach and learn and study and what we teach
1: and learn and study. Right. And, you know, another important part, Reno, to, to go back to um, how we teach and what we teach um, in this essay um, or this speech, he, he's criticizing how the professors are teaching in a dull manner. And he says, uh, philology is never nasty. And he says, I do not think that it should be thrust down throats as a pill. Um, philology is the foundation of humane letters, mythology is a disqualifying defect or disease. And then he goes on to say dullness is to be pitied. And he's kind of criticizing the professors for being dull and boring when this this whole um subject of language is absolutely beautiful and should never be dull or boring. And I think that as a movement in the classical education movement, we're finally getting that. I'm hearing a lot of talk about restoring the uh, wonder. And there is, there's, I think that Tolkien captures that with his stories, that he shows us how to wonder and see beauty and truth through story. And I think, I think that may be part of what he's getting at in this. What, what, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, yeah. So here, let's let's uh, complicate the story a little bit, especially here towards the end, so that there's um, a desire to uh, hear more about this. Right? <clears throat> I mean, uh, the dull and boring. There, there's there's two things going on for those readers who are going to uh, investigate the valedictory address.
1: Uh-huh.
2: One is um, the we see. His final departing shots to um, to the birth of the modern university. Yes, um, that schools are. He talks about uh, those in power need uh, degrees. Um, so there's some relationship between degree seeking and granting um, and the relationship to power itself, which is, I mean huge for him, we don't only just need to think of simply the ring of power, for example. Um, he also talks about uh, um, programs being created built up from a planned economy, right? Mm-hmm. So here we have the kind of the birth of, uh, of a technocracy that Tolkien is sending his departing shot to and its uh, influence in contemporary education. Um, and also what Humphrey Carpenter mentions um, in his biography on the Inklings is um, a shot to what Tolkien said he abominated, um, and this might be surprising to some of our listeners, um, liberal studies. Mm-hmm. That there was a belief that if you just studied contemporary literature, literature that, um, that, that delved into uh, um, the human condition Right. So here we have kind of Freudian psychological movement that's come out of the uh, turn of the century with literary studies um, matched with kind of a contemporary emerging contemporary uh, uh, non uh, theological ethics. Um, that that the, the, the proponents of literary studies thought that if you read enough good literature that it would improve your character and improve your knowledge. You'd become a sophisticated, knowledgeable, and even upright human being.
1: I think a lot of classical educators believe that too, Reno.
2: So, yeah, yeah. So so here's the thing, right? We're starting to kind of split between the way that that, um, we talk about particular things in classical education and maybe the kind of baggage or the holdover uh, of what we are thinking about or imagining when we understand this. So yes. notice that Tolkien says that philology is the foundation of what? The humane letters, mm-hmm. right? Philology is the foundation of humane letters. And so the idea of kind of seeing and mining literature and thinking that, that uh, that the seeking and mining and that the kind of the intellectual, Um, uh, consuming and contemplation of uh, literature is what makes one uh, draws one to uh, the good true and the beautiful might not necessarily be the case because because there's a large cosmological and anthropological implication involved here and I think this relationship to what Charlotte Mason is talking about and what you all have been talking about insofar as we need to kind of think about this as a living, breathing whole that is re- that is multifaceted and varied. And so, so many people would say Tolkien was a boring professor, right? But that's not the kind of dullness that he's talking about. The dullness that he's talking about is the dullness of the artificial, uh, the lifeless artificial, the lifeless technical, the lifeless, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the lifeless. Uh, liberal education that one might uh, encounter today um, in uh, the the public sphere, for example.
1: Yeah, this is so important. I'm so glad that we're talking to you about this today. Trey, I'm sure you're itching to ask some questions or make some comments because I've been kind of taking over here. Go for it.
0: (laughs) Well, I wanna ask a question about going back to, uh, well, I, I have a question about myth and myth and you mentioned mm-hmm. mythopoeia, yeah. and so perhaps we could uh, circle back around to that. And, but before you do that, talk to us a bit about Tolkien's relationship with trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so he, Tolkien was a a, uh, a, a lover of. Of, of the natural world, of all variety of flora and fauna, uh, and, and in particular, trees. And I think there's something in uh, a uh, tree that, uh, that captured the, the, the deeper implications of this um, broad, interpenetrating relationship between language the natural world um, and uh and the the unseen world uh, so to speak it's captured beautifully i'm not a big fan of a lot of what's in it but the the tolkien film so there was a film uh that came out i think three years ago now um, a, a biography of, his, it wasn't hagiography enough, but um, it was a, a suitable biography um, in which he's talking to his mentor about um, the word is used for oak. That, that trees are more than just uh, things that give shade or can be used to get fruit or things to uh, make paper, right here we see that kind of consistently, it is simply a thing. Uh, that, that there was a world in a time in which the language that we used and the stories that we told saw trees and forests as, uh, um, as places of encounter of something deep and magical and rooted, um, mysterious and unknown, life-giving and also in in some ways uh, useful. And so um, I I think for him that the tree itself um, has always been a picture of uh, the possibilities that have been forgotten forgotten relationships, which people can read more about, for instance, in Owen Barfield's Poetic Dictionary um, is a great resource uh, on that. But um, the possibility of re-enlivening in what it looks like, that if we just simply kind of change relationships to trees, we would begin to see a changing process in in means to kind of re-enchant the world itself
1: yeah you know reno it's interesting that you say this trey i'm really glad you brought this up about trees and and reno what i'm hearing is so we're going back to this medieval view of the world being viewing the whole world as one big connected cosmos and that's where when we ask the question what is classical education and we're trying to point everybody back to the tradition it does have Serious implications when you understand that the view of the the whole cosmos was one big relationship. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Is is that right?
2: It is. I, it, it is on at a at a basic level. And here we should say, and I just want to kind of put do one last bow shot um, to across the bow of of class education and and maybe some sacrosanct. Um, Uh, beliefs. I absolutely adore Lewis's discarded image. I think it's an essential text. It should be a part of uh, kind of any uh, medieval history course, um, and at least read by anyone who cares about classical education.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Now, what Lewis does say, though, um, is that he doesn't think that this uh, medieval image of the world can be uh, revived. Uh, And in many ways, he's correct, right? Like, we cannot kind of go back into the past
0: this way. Uh Uh,
2: But I do think there's also something there that we see in the kind of uh, the the Lewis school of classical education, let's say, right? Lewis is dear to our hearts um, for a variety of reasons and uh, more so than others within uh, the classical world. There's something kind of noetic and graspable about Lewis, um, th- that he makes sense. He makes us feel good about ourselves because we feel smart when we read Lewis. Yeah,
1: in, that's ways, so right? true. It's like reading yeah. Locke.
2: This is why um, reading Locke in a humane letters class is so good for students uh, and bad. Like, students feel really smart reading Locke. I get what he's saying. Um, and that's kind of dangerous in its in its own right. But for, there is um, something that t- that I think a Tolkien... A uh, uh, view a uh, tolkien school of classical education affords us there is a cosmology that we are tasked with recovering right mm-hmm. and living into it's part of the project of classical education it's not just a, a school of ideas it is a cosmology that we are building um, in these schools and, and, and trying to kind of orient our children towards, for the future, Tolkien totally believed that, um, that we can recover a forgotten cosmology. Yes. And that is at the heart of what a healthy classical education is about. Reorienting our students towards this new cosmology and living a full human life in this new cosmology. Not just a noetic exercise um, in understanding the interrelationship between discrete topics, but forgetting the fact that there are discrete topics. It's kind of like the mythology. Once a culture uses the term mythology for its stories it no longer functions as myth this is what i tell my students right um it no longer functions as myth the greeks never saw their stories as mythology per se um so once we begin to uh forget that these distre- discrete kind of categories um, um, are at work we'll know in generations to come that um, we are reoriented in this new cosmology and I think Tolkien thought that this was possible and that philology was at the heart of this and I think this is why it is essential for a healthy understanding of classical education
1: oh that was so well said I can't wait to go back and re-listen to this and <laughs> that was so brilliant Reno
2: they, they, I mean, like, I wish, uh, um, uh, it, it, it's it's Tolkien, I think we need to, like, invest more time uh, into him and contemplating what is really going on here with this kind of, sim- this seemingly uh, strange uh, uh, old man who uh, has a proclivity towards uh, uh, fantastical stories
1: you know reno i think also just from just from reading this little uh valedictory speech and some of the chapters from the inkling by um humphrey uh carpenter mm-hmm. i gathered and i really didn't know anything about tolkien before but what i gathered was he loved learning and so he carried within him the spark that most children have between the ages of three and seven. And then they lose once we've bored them to death in school. Mm. Okay. And so he kept that spark that we don't want our kids to lose. He kept it. He was passionate as a learner and he self-educated and he loved it. I mean, I gathered how much he loved learning language. He was passionate about it because he discovered a truth a goodness and a beauty in language that captivated his wonder, the wonder within him. And it spurred him into wanting and being hungry to know more and more. And he became the expert. He was because of, he never lost that sense of wonder. I don't know what magic happened that didn't kill that sense of wonder, but that's what we want for all of our students.
0: Well, I think it has something to do with, with our relationship as said in so many words with, with the created order. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Lewis because notably it was, it was his friendship with Tolkien and, and conversation with Tolkien that, that brought Lewis from, let's say a, a deep and uh, abiding interest in stories from the past to see how those stories actually re- reveal truth. And so let's, let's sort of lean into the, the strangeness of Tolkien a little bit more. I've been spending a, a bit of time with uh, Stratford Caldecott's uh, Secret Fire uh, vision of J.R. Tolkien. And one of the things that he, he gets to in the early chapters is this description of Tolkien's understanding of what he was up to in his study of language and of this uh, study of, of myth in some ways he he describes it almost in language that we would perhaps ascribe to uh, the inspired authors of scripture, um, almost as if somehow God was revealing these things to him through words and through old stories, mm-hmm. uh, showing him something uh, about uh, reality. and uh, that's that's one of the things that I think would capture the imagination of a student is to to see that his professor was not just sort of showing up in the classroom and sort of uh, preaching these things at them, but he was actually going into his study and uh, and almost in a, in a mode of prayer, uh-huh. seeking truth through through words and through through these old stories that had been handed down. And of course, the idea of tradition uh, is somewhat lost on us because for something to truly traditional, uh, at least in the way that uh, Joseph Pieper describes it, uh, it actually has to come directly from the hand of God. Yeah,
2: yeah, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned this. So this is really uh, interesting territory. Uh, I haven't read Caldecott's book in in some years now, but I remember um, enjoying it and appreciating it very much. Let's say this. Tolkien, I'm just going to lay this out, Tolkien is a Dante for the 21st century, for a technocratic age. I think his project is, um, I I think, uh, will be seen as such insofar far as he is right, and Lewis talks says like we could talk about Dante as being uh, the 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 image uh, or the the, the the ultimate kind of product of the Middle Ages, but it's actually the 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 the, the cosmological view of the Middle Ages which is the true art form. Tolkien is making a cosmology or recovering a cosmology, right? Mm-hmm. And, one, um, he's recovering in cosmology for us to reinvest into, or to understand or reappreciate in a world that is already too sophisticated for itself, right? Right. It's a sophisticated world after World War II, after the Holocaust, after the fears of of nuclear annihilation, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, in a letter to his son, uh, January, January nineteen forty five um the last months of the war as well. Um, it seems that uh, 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 th- the first war of the machines has come to an end uh, mm-hmm. and only the machines are the victors right There's this deep uh, understanding of a world that looks like this. So I think that Tolkien's work legendarium functions in the way for us that that Dante, um, his writings functioned in the medieval world, and we might even say, and this is the script part. And let's kind of, kind of think in a broad, uh, um, in, in a in a broad human connection to the mysteries of the universe and the veil of the universe. In he's writing in a way that would be familiar to uh, the Iliad uh, or the writings of Hesiod. That there's some coming and going. There's some attempt to re. Uh, to lift the veils from our eyes and to see that in this world of machines, in this uh, um, fragile world of, of technology that there is a coming going of a deeper meaning and truth um, and as human beings created with language and created to make in the image of the maker um, that um, that we are only investing in that, in this present age, will we be able to kind of re-cover uh, um, a full human life, right? Yeah. It's not part from theology, right?
0: I think that's quite right. And, and so just to be clear, uh, what I'm not saying is that uh, Tolkien's works are uh, on par with Scripture or are in essential for salvation in the way— Yes, absolutely. —but what I am saying uh, is that uh, Tolkien's work— uh, rhymes with scripture in some way yeah. because it is it is part and parcel of the same of the same imagination and uh in this way uh it it is very very fitting uh for the 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 classical classroom uh because it participates uh in the the mythos as you said that, that homer does and, and, and dante and he has uh something to tell us about what is real, and maybe we can talk about this for a bit because you know the 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 modern mind and I'm just as modern as the next guy you know we think about when we think about what is real, we think about it in very uh concrete terms that are you know uh, sort of based on uh, an ability to perform some sort of scientific analysis um, but Tolkien says something to the effect at one point that not everything is real in the same way, right? So we can say that, uh, that Middle Earth is real. What do, what, what do we mean, or, or perhaps what does Tolkien mean when he, when he says things like that? Because it can strike us as, well, insanity. Oh yeah, well, this, and this is a deeply kind of classical, yeah, this is a deeply classical uh, conversation that
2: comes up all the time in, uh, in upper school uh, philosophy classes. Um, we need only just think of the Plato's cave analogy, for one. There's, um, let me just say this, that there's a larger uh, conversation about the Anglo-Saxon world and the way Anglo-Saxon literature functioned that was um, very similar to scripture. Um, but that's another conversation that we can get to. Um, inspired by scripture, in tune with scripture, this is all part of a project um, that I'm working on that I'd love to talk more about. But let's just say this, this is a fantastic question. Um, when it comes to myth, I ask my students, um, is, is, uh, is, is myth real? Um, are myths real? Uh, and they know that the answer is uh, they're true. Right? Even the question of asking the the real um, or is it real, uh, we mean that that's born from a kind of a, a contemporary modern uh, 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 idea that's born in nineteenth century Germany, the idea of Wissenschaft, uh, is this verifiable? Um, do we have data for this? Um, is this? Um, uh, can we concretize this? Right? That's that. It's the wrong question. Right? Um, uh, is it real? It's true. It's true. Um, and I oh. think even reorienting ourselves in classical education. Now, This is not to say that we can't know what is real, um, but we need to know very clearly what we mean by the idea um, of what is real. Are vampires real? Mm-hmm. Are werewolves real, let's say? Um, they're true. Mm. As a matter of fact, um, the idea of werewolf, uh, a wereman, um, or, uh, or, or man-wolf, Tolkien talks about were-worms, their worms um, in The Hobbit, right? Um, the idea of human beings who can become dragons. And as a matter of fact, and here's a little um, uh, hint at the way I teach The Hobbit, um, the entire story, it's not, about, it's not necessarily about Snog, it's about human beings who become dragon like, right? Um, so I tell my boys, like, are there, be careful, there's werewolves out there. Are they real? I was, uh, uh, well, it's true. And the only people who have actually seen werewolves turn into wolves um, are those people at the moment in which they're being eaten by the wolf, right? And God forbid that anyone ever sees that moment, right? Mm-hmm. That is true, right? Mm-hmm. That is true. So I think that's the kind of world that Tolkien is trying to draw into, to be able to speak in terms like that. Are there monsters in that forest? There's monsters in that forest. Oh, that's not real. I don't know, but it's true. And I want to find out if you go into that forest at night and see if a monster happens to be um, walking, you cross paths with that monster, right? That's the language enchantment. Um,
1: yes. That's the- Yes. Yeah. And it reminds me, I had a conversation with uh, Ben Lida on Shakespeare, teaching Shakespeare. This is one of our first podcasts that came out and he talked about how you don't need to over explain Shakespeare or any of these complicated texts to children because they know that dragons are real. They know there's evil in the world. They know that that is true. And so that's why story awakens us. And, and even thinking back to C.S. Lewis, uh, the truth of myth is what brought him to Christ. Yeah. If, if we know the story of C.S. Lewis and how he came to Christ, it's because he realized the truth of myth. That's
2: right? right. And that's actually the birth of the poem Mythopoeia. It was actually a walk with um, C.S. Lewis through Addison's walk. Oh, um, and beautiful. the conversation is captured in the poem, Myth of um, and, um, and I've I actually co-wrote a play um, uh, with Michael Ward and Philip Talon. Michael Ward is at um, Oxford, and Philip Talon is uh, at uh, the apologetics department at Houston Baptist University um, about Addison's Walk um, and what that conversation looked like. Um, it's this conversation. It's Tolkien talking about myth in this way Helped Tol- uh, Lewis realize. Oh, wait a second! There's a larger hole that needs to be connected here that I haven't taken into account.
1: Well, I we un- unfortunately we have to end. Uh, we're out of time. I think we could talk for another two hours. We're going to have to have you back on. What I'd like our listeners to do is go to our Facebook page and post questions, comments about this episode. What else? What other? I mean, sure that they all have ten thousand more comment uh, questions. Like we do, that they could post on Facebook, and we could capture those questions and have you back on to continue this conversation. Um, I think I that it. that would be lovely.
0: I'm I'm only interested in in charitable reads, though.
1: Right, Char- not not criticisms.
0: <laughs> or just log off the internet entirely.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Trey, why don't you uh, close with our our closing question?
0: Sure, well, Rena, thank you again for your time. Uh, I'm certain that uh, over your years, you've come across uh, a quote uh, or a book uh, that has had a profound impact on I wonder if you would share uh, one of the two uh, with us uh, as we wrap up our episode. I will, Um, and uh, in
2: the spirit of Tolkien, um, I'm going to expand our sense of literature um, and most certainly not uh, quote anything after 1830. Um, but delve into the richness of the Anglo Saxon world. This comes from the, the great poem Christ um, uh, in the Anglo Saxon world. It was used as part of uh, the An- Advent uh, liturgy. Um, and this is um, uh, the portion that I want to read that was uh, so important to Tolkien. <laughs> On sot fe sta sunen leoma ort o fortunglas tu tida gewane of stilfum fe simle in Letes that is translated roughly as O Erendil, brightest of angels, sent to mankind over middle earth, righteous sun's radiance splendid above all stars. And of course um, uh, the, just talking uh, about the advent uh, of christ here
1: that's beautiful thank you reno thank you thank you so much for listening we invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our patreon page visit patreon.com forward slash classical education Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words, this, they will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.